I'm Simi Abdullah, and I'd like to welcome you to Trillium Montessori Talks, the podcast where we dig into the theory and application of Montessori methodology in the classroom and beyond. This podcast is produced in cooperation with Letty Rising and other Trillium course creators. Our goal is to provide you with a weekly dose of tips, tools, and inspiration so you can optimize the classroom experience for your students and yourself. Ready? Let's talk Montessori. Welcome to Montessori Talks, where we talk about all things related to the Montessori elementary environment and other things related to Montessori as well. And today's guest is Zill Yeager, who is an experienced Montessori teacher, consultant, and coach with a passion for literacy and steadfast commitment to anti-bias and anti-racist education. They are AMI Montessori trained at the three to six and six to 12 ages with multiple literacy certifications. They believe that classrooms should be spaces of joy, critical engagement, and community-minded learning. An advocate for the science of reading, Zill is devoted to translating the latest research into effective classroom strategies. They love supporting teachers, caregivers, and schools to empower children in their learning. So thank you, Zill, for being here with us today. Thank you for having me on, Letty. I am so excited to talk to you about science of reading stuff as related to Montessori, because I know that you recently did a talk for the Science of Reading Summit at Trillium, and it got a lot of buzz. And then I was on your Instagram, and I noticed that you uh, said something that really kind of excited me. Uh, You said, uh, well, you wrote, Montessori teachers should be teaching letter names, too. And that got me very intrigued. And so we're going to sort of talk through a lot of different things related to the science of reading. And I think that um, the listeners are going to be very interested because it's an important topic, particularly for elementary teachers, because we don't necessarily get the reading teaching in our um, at our level. So I guess my first question to you is, what could Montessorians learn from the growing body of science about how we learn to read? Yeah, well, historically, Montessori is in kind of a weird place when it comes to teaching, reading, and learning how to read. First off, as we know, Dr. Montessori developed her ideas in a phonetic language, in Italian, right? So there's some translation already that has to happen when you're learning how to read in English. However, in terms of neuroscience, all human brains learn how to read in the same way. So like the same, and I'm pointing to the lower left hemisphere of my brain, which is where your orthographic processor is, all human brains actually build a new part of their brain when they're learning how to read. And that process, regardless of the language, by and large, happens the same way. But I think that Montessori has always kind of been in this funny place because in the United States, there have been pendulum swings about how we approach teaching reading over time. So, you know, way back in the 50s and 60s, there was actually a much more structured phonics approach that we now know is actually more beneficial to supporting children and learning how to decode. And then as we moved towards like the 70s and 80s, it kind of the pendulum swung toward this whole language approach. 
And so I think Montessori kind of responded because we do have a phonetic approach with like, oh, we also support total reading, which we do. But we've always like as Montessorians have kind of like been in this weird middle ground. And I think that there is a lot that we as Montessorians can learn from this kind of growing body of work that is called the science of reading. Namely, for one, like I said, teaching letter names and sounds. So there's a high correlation between knowing your letter name and being a solid, fluent reader. There's evidence to support that. Additionally, like societally, you need to know your letter names in order to spell words aloud. You need to know your letter names because they can actually help anchor the sound as well, right? right? So there's a lot of reasons for teaching them both at the same time. And honestly, it's just another piece of nomenclature. So why wouldn't we use the power of the absorbent mind? We're like, in that three to six age period, we're teaching tons of nomenclature. So why wouldn't we just make a small shift where, you know, if I'm tracing my S with on my sandpaper letters, instead of just saying S and tracing it, why wouldn't I just say S says S? Oh my gosh. I feel like that is just like, you know, (laughs) mind blowing and yet so simple at the same time. And I asked a long time ago in the beginning of my Montessori journey, like, well, why don't we teach them the letters and the answers that I often, the names of the letters and the answers I often heard were, oh, well, you don't need to know the name of the letter to know how to read the word. And I mean, that is true, but we also do live in a society where children learn the ABC song and it's not hurtful to know the name of the letter. And as you said, it is a piece of nomenclature and we're teaching them so many other types of nomenclature. Why not the names of the actual letters along with the sound? Yeah, I think it's a really simple shift. And I think You know, I think about all the extension games that are offered in the primary as well, like distance matching. So what a great way to create some extensions between, you know, like, like set up your sandpaper letters at a distance, you know, like, let's say a child has had 10 sandpaper letters, you set them up at a rug at a distance, and then you can play bring me games, or you have another set of cards where, you know, the uh, just like little loose leaf cards printed with the the same letters and a child can say, this is N, I'm going to go find N and match it with it. Like there are lots of ways that I think we should be extending that work. I have watched a lot of primary classrooms and children coming out of primary classrooms who for whatever reason didn't get their basic set of sounds. And that's also where I, as an elementary teacher, feel like really concerned because we know that optimal brain plasticity for learning to read is between ages three and seven or eight. Yeah. And I want to interrupt you real quick and say that some of our listeners are from Australia and other countries where primary is elementary. So (laughs) just to clarify three to six. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Casa or three to six. Yeah. Anyways, just creating those extensions, I think, and really supporting those younger learners in coming to the elementary with that really solid foundation of letter sounds and names, and hopefully also like reading at the, you know, phonetic level at at the very, the very basic level. 
Well, I'm sure it's going to be mind blowing for people to, you know, this is sort of a little bit of, I guess, a, a Montessori myth in some ways that's being disproven that, you know, actually knowing the actual name of the letter along with the sound is 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 beneficial for the kids and it will help them in their reading journey, probably not even early, even early on, but later as well. Absolutely. There's a couple of different things that it helps. I'll just like kind of point them out. So orthographic processing and what that means, ortho is the Latin word for correct or right and graph means to write. So in some ways it's kind of a fancy way of saying spelling. <laughs> mm. But orthographic processing is the ability to map letter symbols to their sounds. And that begins with the accurate identification and discrimination of individual letters. Now we do that with our eyes, right? But like imagine a P and then imagine a P turned horizontally and imagine a P turned upside down the other way and imagine a P turned then, you know, another rotated 90 degrees in your mind. When a child is first learning how to read, like, that's how it can seem, right? We don't necessarily, we're not uh, wired in our brains to see letters and know what they are. We are wired to recognize faces and objects. So we are actually having to teach our brain how to discriminate a P from a Q, from a B, from a D, right? All of those could get mixed up. And you might have even noticed your children mixing those sounds up. But if you're able to attach a label to that, this is a P, it says P, that's going to make it easier to kind of have a hook for that image, right? Yes, and an extra little piece of context for them. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so another question that comes to mind here is how do we empower learners to understand how human brains learn how to read? And I mean, no, really? is that important for the children to know as well as their teachers? Yes. I'm so glad you asked this. Okay. If you are familiar with our elementary approach in Montessori, we start with these five great lessons. We're really setting the context and opening up this huge cosmic world for children, right? We're inviting them to understand, like, how am I as an individual human situated within the great scope and span of, like, the existence of the universe, and one of the things that I, I wrote a story and I'm really like encouraging teachers to go seek out this story and to tell this story, which is the story of how humans came to learn to read. Mm -hmm. Because I think when children understand how their brains are developing, it can help remove some of that stigma of I'm like, I'm struggling to learn how to read and my peers next to me are are not right. How many children have you encountered in your in your teaching career, Letty, that maybe started feeling really badly about themselves because they couldn't read at the same you know with the same stamina or the same fluency as their peers, and so maybe other behaviors started to come out, right? Maybe they came, became really withdrawn or explosive, really avoidant of literacy tasks, and I think that when we tell children about their brains, we actually can show them like, you know what, this is actually a really hard task. Dr. Louisa Motes actually calls learning how to read rocket science, because it is you are like building a whole new part of your brain, you're rewiring your brain. And I think the thing children need to understand is that some human brains require very few repetitions in order to get that wiring online. And other human brains require a lot of repetitions and how glorious that our human brains are all different. 
because it allows us to come into this world in many different ways. So that's like one aspect. So and wait, sec- you've written so you've written a story about this, you said? Is this on your website maybe or it is. And it's free for the next two weeks through kind of mid-September. It'll be free. So I'm not sure when this podcast goes up. It will be a little while down the road because we have many in the queue, but I that will be great if the people can access that. I'm sure it'll be definitely ready by the time um, the podcast is ready. So that sounds exciting. And that people can find your the link to your website and the article attached to this so they can find out more because I would love to read that story. It sounds like a good one. Yeah, that story is on my website. You can put in your email address right now to, to download it. Um, and maybe when the podcast goes up, maybe I'll make it special and free again for, okay. for that little chunk of time. That sounds um, wonderful. Yeah. So I wrote a story because I, I want children to understand how they learn how to read. But then there's another piece of empowering learners when it comes to literacy. And that's for them to understand the idea of multiple literacies, right? So reading is not the only like way to access information. And writing is not the only way to express ourselves. So when we think about white supremacy characteristics, there's a glorification of the written word, that the written word holds this like truth that can't be denied and that can't be challenged. And history is often written by colonizers. So we know (laughs) that that's not actually true. So we need to also, in addition to teaching children how to read and affirming like this is how your brain learns how to read, We also need to encourage them to express themselves in the ways that feel most aligned with their own identity, right? So if that's through song, if that's through, you know, performance, if that's through creative arts, if that is through oral storytelling or debate or speech, like whatever, whatever those other modalities are, encouraging children and giving them outlets to express themselves through those, those different modalities. Yeah, it makes me think about a student that I had who was in lower elementary and she, you know, when she finally we were able to bring a specialist in, she said, you know, she has probably one of the most significant cases of dyslexia I've worked with. But anyway, this child, though, she had developed this amazing memory and became this oral presentation star that you wouldn't believe she would deliver these oral presentations that just left people speechless, you know, they were so excited about what she was offering. And the wonderful thing about Montessori environments is that while the children are developing those skills, there are many other ways that we allow them to express themselves alongside developing those skills so that they can still develop the content and also move along, you know, uh, with their peers in other ways. Another fun story that I remember is I had a, a student whose dad was a professional athlete and he had moved around to his mom put him in Montessori schools everywhere he went. And he also struggled with reading very heavily and came to us at eight and he wasn't yet reading. And he knew all of his grammar, his sentence and like he knew everything orally. I lo- He actually gave me great ideas from his teachers at his other schools that I implemented. I'm like, oh, that's an amazing idea. Different follow-up ideas and activities. But just, you know, having him being excited exposed to all that knowledge. So finally, when it did click in for the reading, like that was an amazing experience for him to be able to have had that knowledge base that was there and not just waiting for him to learn how to read. So a little bit related to what you were saying, but 
Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's also just so aligned with our Montessori approach that you give experience right before you give like the language for something. And so having children in that CASA time of three to six years old have that incredibly rich oral language experience that's really emphasized in our Montessori training, that's going to give children like the depth and breadth of vocabulary that they need so that when they're encountering, you know, a really big multisyllabic word and they're needing to break it down, they already know what it means when they figure out how to decode it. Mm-hmm. And so... Absolutely. Well, that relates a little bit to the next question that I have for you, which is how can educators best support learners who come into a younger elementary classroom without these foundational literacy skills that we hope that they have? Yeah, (laughs) this is a huge question. It is. And and it's probably not one that can be answered in a podcast session or maybe even fully answered at all, because, you know, there are lots of different strategies that people are using for different children settings and scenarios. Yeah. And it's honestly, it's this is the question that drove me towards this work. I started with my elementary training when I was really young, 21, and like taught in an upper elementary classroom, eventually went and taught lower elementary. So I kind of went backwards. And it was when I was teaching lower elementary that I was like, I've got to learn more because I'm encountering children who don't have the skills and I don't feel equipped to know how to teach them and support them. So I went back and got my primary training and that helped. But it's really been in the last few years where I've just delved into a lot of uh, individual independent research around the science of reading that I've started to put together, okay, this is how we can reframe literacy in our younger elementary classroom. And I'm going to be actually like answering this question also to an extent, but not fully in a three series set of workshops at Montessori Northwest that are virtual and taking place between the middle to of September through the middle of October. However, in answer to your question, I think there's a couple of different ways. First, an individual teacher needs to not be afraid to assess. So I think assessment is like this big, scary word. At least it was for me as an elementary teacher coming out of a very like AMI-driven Montessori culture. I was like, assessment is this dirty word. I shouldn't be standardized, like doing standardized testing whatsoever. This is going to harm children somehow. And as I've delved deeper into this world of literacy, I'm like, no, this is science. I'm just gathering data and it doesn't have to be scary. It can be super friendly. It can be painful. It can be, you know, you can, can, there are assessments that I've used that are quick and dirty that just take a few minutes and they capture maybe not the whole picture, but give you a little snapshot of something. And, you know, you can do that at the beginning of the year with children. And it's all about the way you frame it and the way you think about it in terms of how the child receives it, in my opinion. Exactly. So I think, you know, you have six-year-olds coming into your classroom, starting by just doing letter card drills and seeing what letter names and sounds they know. If they know all their letter names and sounds, great, move on to consonant, vowel, consonant, or CVC words, see what they've got there. Move on then to maybe some like simple decodable readers, see how they're doing there. And from there, you're going to kind of develop your list of, okay, what do they know? What do they not know? And what do I need to teach? 
There are more standardized assessments. There's a universal screener called Dibbles, but there's also like Acadians or iReady. A universal screener is a really great way to make sure that all of the children in a school between like hopefully kindergarten and third grade at the very least are being screened for reading risk. Jan Hasbrook, who's a literacy researcher and helps develop the oral reading fluency norms equates Dibbles or ORF to a thermometer. So she's like, does this child have a reading fever or do they not have a a reading fever, right? It's quick, it's an accurate, it's normed to a benchmark standard. And it just tells you whether or not there's a risk. It doesn't tell you what the risk is, right? It doesn't diagnose a disease. It doesn't do any of that. It just tells you like, do we need to be paying attention or like, are things okay? Absolutely. Okay. So, so it sounds like you have some like thoughts around like supporting the younger elementary child with these foundational literacy school skills from the teacher perspective, I guess what could, what, not only what can teachers do in their classroom setting, but what do you think might need to be done at the school-wide level? I mean, you did mention the assessments, but is there anything else that you can think of or? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I think, again, individual teachers, don't be afraid. I was really afraid to stray outside of my albums when I was a younger elementary teacher. I really felt like I needed to adhere to exactly what was given. But as I have grown in my in my career, I've discovered, well, you know what? If they don't know how to read, you got to teach them how to read. And I'm going to stand on my head and do whatever it is I need to do to teach children how to read so that they can be independent and autonomous learners, right? Like that's what we want. Kind of like the repetition through variety that we do in elementary. I mean, you know, we know that we have to give them a variety of different ways if, if, if they're not being reached in a certain way. So that variety can be outside of our album sometimes, um, but also aligned with it. I mean, I don't think Montessorians are picking things that feel like wildly out of alignment and they're trying to pick things as close to alignment as possible when it comes to these things. Yeah. So I guess what my guidance to an individual lower elementary teacher would be to, you know, if you have identified a group of like, let's say in your first year group, there's three or four children who they don't know their sounds or they're struggling with, you know, putting together phonetic words don't be afraid to say, you know what, I'm going to get together with this group of kids for 20 minutes every single day until we're seeing some traction. And I would not classify that as a lesson in the like Montessori type of lesson way where I'm going to plant a seed of inspiration and they're going to go off and do follow-up. I would instead see that as guided practice. Those 20 minutes are your guided practice where I'm making sure that they're getting those touch points. And in that lesson, you're going to do some phonemic awareness. You're going to do a little bit of handwriting, perhaps. You're going to do some reading of words. You're going to do some writing of words. Maybe you're going to play a game to practice that fluency. You're going to be reading a text that aligns with the skill set or the skill level where they are. And you're going to explicitly teach a couple of irregular words, right? So that they're learning, you know, that said the s and the d follow our code, but the AI that makes f that doesn't follow our code. That's like the tricky part of the word or the heart part of the word. And we're going to to anchor that in that way. 
Well, so what if you have a situation where the teacher is maybe brand new to the school, maybe the school is new, and there is a bunch of children who didn't have children's house, they're coming from all different backgrounds and experiences, and you have a bunch of kids who are not reading. Would you suggest maybe an idea of, you know, what if they feel like 20 minutes a day is overwhelming because they have not just three, but maybe they have 10, you know, children. Like, so what if it, what if they say like, what if they just do 10 minutes a day instead of 20? Do you think that that would be helpful or do you think it would be helpful to have larger groups with 20? I'm just thinking of that, that whole time efficiency that we're always trying to look for and maximize. Something is better than nothing, right? So if you've got 10 kids and you got to do 10 minutes, like that's what you do, right? I think also not being afraid to purchase a curriculum that you know aligns with the science of reading and then adapting it to your needs. So I have found a lot of success in the intervention groups that I worked with using the University of Florida Literacy Institute curriculum. It was studied and piloted with teachers for two years And then it was published last year. So last year was the first year teachers kind of across the nation were using it. People people often refer to that as UFLI. Yes. If anybody wants to UFLI, look that up. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and it's accessible in terms of price too, which is I think really great. Yeah. I also think schools have a responsibility. And again, like coming from an AMI perspective, we're not supposed to have specialists in the classroom and you're supposed to limit the number of adults. I am starting to push back on that because I think we have to give children the skills and tools they need in order to be confident and successful learners within their society. And so I created over the last couple of years at my previous school, a literacy intervention program. And that kind of removed that weight of needing to do those daily 20 minute lessons with kids from the classroom teachers, because it is a lot, you're doing a lot of other things. I know, I know that you are. Mm -hmm. And so if a school is resourced and able to prioritize having someone who, you know, does all of those Dibbles assessments and kind of helps coordinate with caregivers around what are the needs of children and what kind of home practice can be happening and who also is running those daily intervention groups of hopefully only three to four kids, right? But because this is a separate role, they can be kind of working through those different groups throughout the school day across different classrooms and providing the the level of support that truly is needed if, if you've got that number. And certainly coming out of virtual learning, I know my school definitely had <laughs> a much higher number of children who needed help. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of help that is, (laughs) kids need a lot of help, especially after the pandemic time. I don't know, it's been a very difficult and challenging period for a lot of teachers and then feeling frustrated of like, I feel like children are usually mostly in this spot, but they're not there yet and trying to figure that out. Do you have any other resources that you could recommend offhand besides UFLY that you mentioned that you think that teachers might be interested in learning more about or benefit from, uh, whether they be personal resources or ones that you've used yourself that are out in the world that you have vetted, I guess, because the hard thing is there's so much information out there in the world and people are always looking to trusted resources. And so, you know, having somebody who has expert knowledge who can, you know, share this worked for me or these things worked for people that I know and I, I, I can verify they're good is really helpful place to start. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also, on my website, there is a link to my bookshop. So you can go and you can check out my affiliate links of different books I've recommended. One great book that recently came out is Powerful Literacy in the Montessori Classroom by Sailor Feinberg and Zoll. What I like about that book is they take Scarborough's Rope, which is a model for understanding reading, and they map out all of the Montessori lessons and Montessori approaches according to the help, like how that rope weaves itself into total fluent reading. Louisa Motes, who wrote Speech to Print, is another great like background resource. And she, along with Carol Tolman, developed a training called Letters, L-E-T-R-S, um, which is put on by Lexia. I actually did that this summer and it really consolidated and helped kind of help me just, I don't know, bookend a lot of the kind of ad hoc independent reading and uh, study I was doing. So if you have the opportunity to take that, it's often offered, if you're a public Montessorian, it might be offered for free by your district, in which case I would definitely recommend going in and seeking that out. In addition to UFLY, I also think Emily Gibbons, who runs the Literacy Nest, is an Orton-Gillingham tutor and expert and her resources. So she has like decodable passages. She's got printable games on teachers pay teachers. I find her resources really helpful. There's a book called Uncovering the Logic of English. And so if you're trying to figure out how do I approach spelling, her book by uh, Denise, I I don't know if it's Eid or Eid, but her book is really fantastic. Okay, you that's a lot of that's a lot of great resources right there. Okay. I don't want you to have to to tell them all. I have another question. I'm not sure if I should ask this, but I, it's worth asking actually. Is I is there anything that people should not be doing that you feel like is is something that's worth I guess mentioning today? Yeah, memorizing sight words, which you know. Okay, so a sight word is any word that you know automatically. It doesn't mean that it's a a puzzle word, as we call it in Montessori. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually think that the approach that we have to teaching puzzle words is not aligned with the science of reading because we are just depending on the three-period lesson and depending on memorization for teaching puzzle words. What do you suggest instead? So there's a method called the heart word method, and I kind of alluded to that. But if you have a word like the... TH makes the sound mm, and so about 50% of the time TH makes mm voiced and 50% of the time it makes unvoiced. Okay. So TH actually follows its rules. Mm-hmm. The only part of the word the that doesn't follow its rules is the E making a. And so we point out, oh, TH makes the mm. Yeah, you know that, like this or then. The E it's not following its rules. Let's draw a little heart over it. That's the heart part. The part we have to learn by heart, right? Oh, I like that. <laughs> or sometimes people also, I'll sometimes have children highlight it. And I say, highlight the tricky to make it sticky. Yeah. <laughs> highlight the E. Oh, I like that rhyme. That's really cute. Yeah. And so any word, and until a child has learned the rule, any part of a word can be a heart part of a word, right? So if like a child doesn't know yet that uh, why sometimes makes I, right? In words like by, sky, my, that could be the heart part of the word until that is introduced explicitly. So if you had the word like was, so the heart part of the word would be the us part. 
just the uh, just the a because yeah. s also 50% of the time makes z. That's true. So, I mean, but if a child hadn't been introduced explicitly to s making z, then yes, the uh and the z would be the heart parts. Okay. Yeah. And would you draw two little hearts over them or just, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. This is good. Okay. This, the puzzle word or sight word piece is definitely, I think that will be new for a lot of people because yeah. most people finally are in agreement that, you know, we just can't learn a word by just looking at the word and memorizing it. Like we need to sound it out and people are always like, but what about the, but what about (laughs) the irregulars? Yeah. The second thing I would tell people not to do Letty is leveled readers. And this is so hard because if you're like me, you depended a lot on your public library and your public library is organizing your books by like level one, yellow, level two, blue, or however it is that they do it those books level one can have words like mice or mouse or through like it can have you know oftentimes these leveled readers are just about having like fewer words on a page it's not about looking at what the words are so when children are first starting to learn how to read we need to provide them with decodable readers monarch readers is a set of decodable readers that was developed by montessori teachers with an abar focus so i'd really recommend those I'd also really recommend the flyleaf readers or just write readers are all decodables I've used in the past. Decodable readers ask children to read at the level that they're practicing and helps them focus in on a specific, you know, pattern. And that can really help give them the kind of repetition that they need to solidify and consolidate that information. Okay. Um, do you feel like that there's enough decodable readers out there in the world? Or do you feel, feel like we need to be working on making more of those? Never enough. Are you are you writing somebody? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because that is on my list, but um, I'm not quite there yet. But it's it's coming along at some point here. So I guess, you know, why should Montessori folks be embracing opportunities to collect data? I mean, a little bit you've alert, alluded to this, but like, what's the purpose? Like, why why is this important that we collect all this data? I think especially in the elementary, right? You've got six and seven-year-olds. Your window of opportunity for teaching and reading is getting narrower and narrower, right? And actually, any, any human can learn how to read. It just how easy it is becomes narrower and narrower over time. So by collecting data, you are both identifying who needs help by assessing using something like um, the core phonics screener or the quick phonics screener, you can figure out what does that child need, right? And then as you're teaching them how to read, you're hopefully doing some progress monitoring, maybe once a month, maybe every three, two to three weeks. And that's gonna tell you is how I'm teaching helping this child actually learn how to read, right? So it's it's all three of those parts. Who needs help? What kind of help do they need? And is what I'm doing working? And not as a judgment on you as a teacher, but just as like, hey, is my teaching approach effective or do I need to shift and find something else to do? Absolutely. This makes me kind of think of another question that pops into my mind right now, which is, you know, what, uh, I know there's been sort of this, you know, talk in the past of like, oh, let's just like wait it out a little bit and see, you know, they might developmentally just need a little more time. What is your response to that? And, um, you know, what is your suggestion when uh, you hear people saying that, I guess? 
to teachers, I'm waving a giant red flag and saying, do not wait. (laughs) (laughs) To caregivers, I'm lovingly saying, please don't wait. Let me help you tell you some things that you can do so that we can work on this together. Because I know as a caregiver myself, how, you know, how anxiety, like it's, there's a lot of anxiety that can come up when you're Mm -hmm. kind of observing your child's reading journey. And through my years of doing this work, I, I know that oftentimes the solution is number of repetitions Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, there's more nuance than that. But honestly, the biggest and bluntest tool that we can offer in supporting children along their reading journey is repetition. Like, and some children just need a lot more. And so if you just wait, they're not going to be getting those repetitions. You're right, because you need to have repetition in order to get there. And waiting doesn't offer that. That's such a good point. So what is sort of the earliest ages that you might see some things that make you concerned and want to delve into what's going on more with the child in terms of their reading? Would you say four, five, six? Uh, what, what, when would you think that people might be noticing these sort of these patterns? Yeah. If you are a primary teacher, a three to six-year-old teacher, and you start doing your sandpaper letters, my album says between the ages of three and four, to be working on sandpaper letters. And so it also says that when you introduce sandpaper letters, the worst thing you can do is introduce it one day and then stop, right? My album tells me, once you start sandpaper letters, you're on that train until the child has had all of them. And that means probably daily or every other day, right? Like if you're not doing it three times a week, then it's not enough repetition. So if you are like faithfully following that and a child is four, and you started at like, you know, three years, four months, three and a half, and you've been working on sandpaper letters for six months, and they're not retaining those, or they're retaining only a very small sound set, but they're still confusing b and d, or they're still confusing e and i, f and it, because they sound pretty similar, you know, or they're confusing p and q, or sometimes I see children who can confuse h and f which is interesting because they both have a, a an unvoiced sound. That to me is a signal like, okay, there might be something more going on. I'm not going to, that's not like a, I need to go tell the parents to go get a diagnosis. No, absolutely not. This is just, I need to pay more attention and maybe offer more repetitions, slow down my instruction, offer more explicit, solidated instruction, and then reassess from there and see from there. Now, if that child stays on and now they're five and a half, right? And they're still like, they've kind of worked through those sandpaper letters. They're still mixing up some sounds. They're reading CVC words really choppily, even though, you know, you introduce the movable alphabet four and a half or five. And you've, you know, you've been doing the phonogram box and like your, the phonetic, phonetic object box, you've been doing all the things your album tells you to, but this child is five and a half and they're still really like things are stilted. And maybe this child in their kindergarten year, maybe you have a, a universal screener. And on that universal screener, it's showing that they've got really weak phonemic awareness, right? And that they've got really weak letter naming ability and they are not able to read any of the, the words in the, the, the word list. To me, that's a time to tell caregivers and like just with curiosity and love, like, hey, like these are some of the things I'm noticing. 
can you tell me more about your family's history with reading? And there's a very high correlation between familial dyslexia and a child's dyslexia. So that's, and and again, I, I think we have to remove the stigma from it and do it from a way that empowers caregivers and supports children, right? But just, I think, starting then and saying like, this is what I've been doing in class. And I'm thinking that it would be helpful to have some extra support. Because if you can catch a kid in their kinder year or their first grade year at the latest and give them like really infuse all of that extra support, you can change the trajectory of their academic career. So can we go into the the place where you are talking about elementary children who are going through this? Like, let's say they start in first grade. Well, you know, what would be your process, I guess, of working with them to getting to the point you did when you were talking about three to six? Yeah. So I would hopefully be using a a universal screener. If a child received um, a universal screener in September of their first grade year, it showed that their reading skills were low, I would definitely immediately contact the caregivers, let them know this is what the universal screener is saying. Here's what I'm going to do. And what you're going to do is you're going to do those 20 minutes of lessons every single day, or you're going to work with your interventionist. And then you're monitoring your progress monitoring. In January, if you haven't seen a lot of traction between September and January, you're contacting those caregivers again to say, here's what I'm noticing. So we can continue to do those 20 minutes a day where we can continue to work with the small groups in school. And it would be supportive to so-and-so to potentially receive outside tutoring one-on-one. Or I can give you things that you're going to need to do at home, but you have to do it every single day. Because again, it's those numbers of repetitions. And the reason that we're working so hard in that like kindergarten, first, second grade year is that's when you can make those shifts. If you wait, now the intervention is going to happen in third grade. And it's probably going to last like four years Mm -hmm. instead of it lasting six to 12 months. Yes. So the earlier, the better with, as with everything, you know, and developmentally when reading is happening during that window, you know, that's the time to jump in. So, okay. Well, gosh, we have had such a great time together. I feel like we could keep talking about this and I can tell you're clearly very passionate and knowledgeable about this topic. And so uh, people can find your is it just zillieger.com? Your yep. yeah. And so, and people can find you on Instagram. Um, you are also, we also are going to have a transcribed article so they can see it. Um, thank you so much for coming today, Zill, and sharing your knowledge and your expertise and giving a lot of specific, concrete examples on how people can really support their children on their reading journey. And it was great having you today. And to all the listeners, I look forward to having you listen in our next podcast episode. Thanks for having me on, Letty. Thank you, Zill. Thanks for tuning in to Trillium Montessori Talks. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will love the practical and actionable classroom management advice in the Montessori Principles to Practice webinar libraries. Head to trilliummontessori.org forward slash podcast for details and to learn about all the ways we can help you optimize your Montessori work. We'll be back soon with more Montessori inspiration. In the meantime, please help other Montessori guides 
find this podcast by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast listening platform. Thank you for being a part of the Trillium community.